0: Hello, and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker, a Korean transracial adoptee and a mother.
1: And I'm Robin, a Korean transracial adoptee and a therapist. In today's episode, we are thrilled to be in conversation and community with J-Ron Kim. J-Ron is a fierce advocate, researcher, social worker, blogger, and is a needle-savvy knitter. We continue to admire the ways she has been a constant force within the community, shedding light on so many aspects of foster care and adoption. Jayron's professional work exceeds time and space, and we are making sure to include links to her research, as she's big on making this accessible to all. Jayron's recent research around Korean adoptee parents and the socialization intersections of race, ethnicity, and adoption has been groundbreaking and a first of its kind. As J-Ron's contributions within academia have profoundly impacted our community and continue to push boundaries about how adoption and adopted people are viewed, discussed, and most importantly, how we can connect ourselves collectively. Welcome, Jaron. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you both for inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking with
1: you today. Jaron, thank you.
0: Yeah, we are so excited to be in conversation with you today. And as we begin our conversation together, we are really curious about where you are now as a parent. And what are the top two adoptee parenting themes that you are experiencing and are meditating these days?
2: So I really love this question. So my kids are in their 20s, they're both young adults. I guess my oldest one is. Has now turned 28. So she's actually not even a young adult anymore. (laughs) It seems so hard to believe that they're full fledged adults living their lives. So I would say that my top parenting themes really are around learning to let go as a parent and let them be who they are out in the world. And I think every parent. Probably struggles with this a little bit, especially when our kids are younger and as they turn into adolescents, kind of that push-pull about just worrying about how life can be for them and wanting them to be happy and healthy, however that is defined for them. And it may be different than it is for you as a parent. When I was, when my kids were in their teen years, articulated it as the support versus enable continuum. And that's really around the challenges that parents have about how much when you're trying to support your kids, are you actually maybe enabling them to not learn skills for themselves? How do you push them to develop skills um, in ways that they don't find or feel that you're kind of abandoning them or not supporting them, but also being mindful of trying to be overprotective and then them not being able to develop those skills for themselves as they get older, because you really can't be there with them all the time. And when your kids become adults, well, I, when, when they're teenagers, even you really start to see it, but my kids live in a different state. And so I don't have, even though we're in a lot of communication together, I'm not there as much just to see the the day in and day out of their lives. And so just having to learn to trust that they're doing okay. And, All the work that I did when they were younger to really establish a relationship with them so that they would want to be in connection with me as they get to be adults, I'm seeing played out. So it's a fun time. I think it's really fun to have adult kids. The conversations that we have, they range from really profound things that I'm learning from them, as well as silly and joyful. And then, of course, every now and then there's things that are hard that come up and, and we try and help them and support them in problem solving for themselves as much as possible. But yeah, those are, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about now that my kids are 23 and 28.
0: You know, my daughter's seven and just hearing you talk about this incredible foundation of a relationship that you've built with your daughters and letting that play out and trusting in that process and trusting in all the work and the blood, sweat and tears you put into you know their lives when they were growing up, and getting to really enjoy the fruits of that labor and the fruits of that love now, in a really joyful and profound way, uh, it just gives me a lot of hope and inspiration. And also just kind of your process too, as a person, you know, just embracing that you are all people. You know, they're your kids, and also you're all people, and they're going to do things differently maybe than you would choose. And learning that, letting go, and um, that respect, that mutual respect so thank you.
1: You know, Jaron, we're also so fascinated by your research around adoptees as parents, um, more specifically how Korean adoptees talk about ethnicity, race, and adoption. We also want to Give a shout out for your recent publication, Race and Power and Transnational Adoption. So your work is just so deeply embedded, you know, just in not only the community, but also just, I imagine just how that might feel as an adoptee, a BIPOC adoptee, as well as being a parent. And so, you know, what has it been like for you conducting this research?
2: I do the research that I felt was missing when I was in graduate school and when I was getting my degrees in social work. I read a lot of research. I was really fortunate to have a professor who was a transracial adoptee in my undergrad. And he really encouraged me. I remember sitting in class and him talking about the research and just being amazed that he could talk about different articles and different authors and different research studies. And I hoped that someday I could get there, too. So when I really started digging into the literature myself on adoptees, I felt that there was just a lot of things missing. And so even though a lot of the research might include adoptees as research participants, well, first of all, a lot of it didn't, especially the research around racial identity, racial development, those sorts of things from the 80s and 90s. And it was oftentimes from the perspective of parents. And not the adoptees themselves. Or a lot of times it was talking to adoptees as a really famous study that was conducted. I just felt that even developmentally, it was, it was lacking because they were asking kids who weren't even in that identity development phase of their life, questions around do they feel proud to be, you know, Black or Asian or whatever it was. And of course they said, yes, because that's what an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old might do. But as we know, a lot of our identity development really starts to take shape in our adolescent and young adult years. And I would argue for adoptees or for people of color who live in predominantly white communities, it happens even later because it's not until you're really more confronted with being part of communities of color that you start to see those tensions and rewrite those narratives. So for me, it just didn't ring true that they were saying, oh, see, transracial adoption works and these kids don't have any identity problems based on the narratives of younger kids who hadn't really gone through that phase or had those experiences to be able to compare. Um, And then I was working for a while as a child welfare worker and kind of looking at the research, the evidence about adoption and foster care and felt that Just there was such a lack of, like even the type of questions that researchers ask are really telling. Research is, the aim is to be objective, but it's so subjective. And so not saying that the research that was conducted before was bad. Some of it was was good, but it was limited at the time because of the questions that they asked and because maybe the perspectives of adoptive parents or professionals who don't have that lived experience as an adoptee, as a transracial adoptee, they might just not even know what questions to ask. So it's just also about expanding the questions that we're asking. So for me, that's really what my research goals are is to think about what questions haven't been asked. And I feel like you can only know that the more time you spend in community. And since I spent a lot of time being part of the Korean adoptee and transracial adoptee community before I became a researcher, I was able to listen and hear themes that people were saying that are kind of like anecdotal. And one of the challenges is that anecdotal stories aren't considered evidence in research. They're just considered one person's story or another person's story. And I had a friend once tell me that research was bearing witness. And that really struck me because I felt like, okay, if people aren't here to document, if whoever's doing the research isn't documenting what people are saying in a community, then they're not witnessing, we're not able to make it part of our, not just the research literature, but our historical legacy, right, as a community. So I think those are some of the things that were really priorities for me when I was doing this research, making sure that I was trying to listen to what I heard people saying in the community that wasn't being reflected in in the current research and trying to add that.
1: Yeah, it's so important and really appreciate you really asking the types of questions or expanding on the questions because we, we need that and representation matters. But also, like you said, you just, you know, so deeply within the community and being around the community for so long and so actively that this is just such a gift to the academic community as well. I mean, I certainly understand what it's like to be in grad school and not hear or learn much about adoption or especially work that's adoptee-centered. It's just been so amazing to have your contributions. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm constantly
2: surprised too when I do the research to hear what the adoptees who participate in my research have to say. It's really fun to be surprised by what you hear. You know, for example, um, one of the things I hadn't thought a whole lot about was with um, parents who are adoptees who also adopt. And there were a number of parents who had adopted, so Korean adoptees who had adopted. And that's something that nobody had really, I mean, we hear about again in the community, but it's not even really talked about as being a parent. The general theme that I tend to hear out in the community is how important it is to have children by birth because we were adopted. But there are many, many people who are adopted who also adopt. That's going to be a question I'm going to pursue even further. We're analyzing the small subset of adoptees who adopted, but it's just the beginning, I'm sure, of a lot more of what people have to say. Nobody talked about being a birth parent and placing a child for adoption, but there are adoptees who place children for adoption too, who are also birth parents. So that's also another thing I think is missing. But again, these are things that I think being an adoptee and being part of a community you know that these are sorts of themes that are coming up. And so now I can maybe pursue those lines or other people can pursue those lines of research and um, get those voices out there too. And I just want to also be clear that I do a lot of this research with other people. So it's not just mine, <laughs> you know, Rich Lee and He Wan Lee and then um, Zhang Zhu, who's the lead author on the Parenting as Adopt These study. So I just want to make sure that they get the credit for that.
0: Thank you, Jaron. Yeah, we will definitely shout out those themes as well, just so that people can follow the works of both you and what you've done collaboratively and those other scholars. I, this is sort of this perfect segue into our next question about you have such an insider's perspective because you are a part of the community. It enables you to bear witness from a very specific, unique vantage point to be able to document the community in a really special and intimate way that somebody who's not a part of the community would not be able to do, let alone be around conversations that are as candid and honest and authentic when you have that trust of sharing that identity and that life experience. I'm curious. I think we're curious about you mentioned adoptees who have become adoptive parents themselves and adoptees who've become birth parents. If there are other areas that need more light shed on them that you would want to expand on kind of other areas that you're interested in researching? In terms
2: of the parenting as an adoptee part, one of the things that came up in our study that also I think is very interesting, would like to hear more about our adoptees who are in reunion and what it's like to have their Korean families involved in some ways whether that's very little minimal or whether it's a lot in their parenting so for example i don't have that experience i not in reunion with my korean family so i just thought it was very interesting as some of the adoptees in our study talked about how they negotiated navigated how much influence or you know even some of the the real challenges thinking about having three or four such grandparents and how much that helps or sometimes hinders their own ethnic and cultural socialization practices with their kids. So I thought that that was really interesting. In terms of my own other lines of research, there's a couple of others that I'm really interested in. One is the idea of challenging the narrative around the quote-unquote forever family and how adoption is positioned as being a forever family. Again, I know this from being out in the community that adoptees experience abuse, neglect, and disruptions in their adoptive families. Some adoptees end up in the foster care system. I first learned about that over 20 years ago, talking to another Korean adoptee at one of the mini gatherings who shared that they'd been in foster care because their first adoptive parents, they were abused and they ended up in the foster care system. That's something we don't really talk about much especially in transnational adoption. If it's foster care adoption, there's more discussion about that, but really almost not at all. Professional social workers and adoption workers are really resistant to considering that adoptive parents sometimes abuse and neglect their adopted kids. Because there's just so little, and it's a very political, it's a very difficult topic to broach. It was really important for me to start that research. And now there's other people who are doing that research too. So I think we're going to see a lot more of it, but it's hard to even get it published, to be honest. People really push back on the, on that idea. I guess that's just another area. I'm also very interested in kind of the intersections around adoptees and disability and thinking about using critical race theory when we talk about transracial and transnational adoption. And so my last book chapter that you just mentioned, uh, Robin, kind of starts to deal with that, kind of thinking about it through a critical race theory lens.
1: Well, we're so appreciative of the continued you know, curiosities and just also the other areas that you just identified that will anxiously await um, as you continue to go into these areas that are oftentimes, like you said, either not talked about or there's resistance or it's really challenging to move this through publication, but just such important areas. And I agree, you know, just really um, having worked in the, the foster care system here in LA, that it can be really These areas around disruption or or adoptions dissolving, especially in transnational adoptions, um, aren't talked about. So I really appreciate you naming that and just really looking at that as an area of, of future research. You know, speaking of also just some really important publications, we want to do a throwback to just really parenting as adoptees being one of the first books that, you know, was published for adoptee parents and really highlighted others' experiences, including your own. And it's really one of the few resources out, um, at least at the time, too, that really talked about what this was like. And so your piece, Breaking the Silence, Teaching My Children to Talk About Race and Racism, encourages parents to talk about adoption, race, and racism. And so in regards to helping your your children develop a positive you know, racial identity, I know that there's also a multi-racial identity aspect to your children as well. Can you share more insight about how you used kind of everyday opportunities, as you mentioned in your piece, whether that was through books or movies or or pop culture, to really help develop the critical consciousness with your children.
2: Yeah, I love this question because it's such an uncritical piece for me in raising my kids. So I actually texted my kids last night to let them know I'm doing this podcast interview with you and what they could remember and their kind of recollections because I thought that would be super interesting. So my oldest texted back, and I got permission to read this. She texted, I remember uh, we talked about all different kinds of children's media that centered around different types of parenting and adoption. So much of our childhood was about growing up being critical of the shows and movies we consumed. So I've always felt more mature when it came to transitioning to more grown-up content as I got older because I got to learn about complicated and nuanced social issues earlier than my peers. I was really intentional in wanting to give my kids language to talk about these issues. I felt that growing up in a family that just didn't talk about difference and didn't talk about race at all and really didn't talk about adoption, that I just didn't know how to talk about it. So all the thoughts and the feelings that I had, I just didn't even know how to express it. So I felt that when I got older and then was in more diverse communities, that it was it was such a big catch up for me and I didn't want my kids to have that. So, you know, I guess my my oldest kids text shows, they also felt like that was helpful to them, that they did have the language to talk about it. I started out using just the media and kids TV shows and movies and books. There's so many of them that have parents who die and adopt- quasi adoption themes or outright adoption themes. It's just everywhere. It's Disney movies, all the old kind of beloved classic children's books have them too so I just saw them all as opportunities to provide just a little bit more context so we would read them or watch them I didn't I didn't ban shows but we would we would watch them and then I would talk about them my oldest loved the movie Land Before Time and I think she was about two between two and three years old when that first one came out it was a film about these little dinosaurs who were separated from the rest of their communities. And so they, the team of these little kid baby dinosaurs traveled together and the main character is a dinosaur named Littlefoot and Littlefoot's parents die and the grandparents are in the, ha- in like this valley. So not only is their parent death and then there's kind of the, assume they're going to the grandparents. So it's like kinship adoption. So there's opportunities to talk about that. And then also diversity, because the other dinosaurs are all different species. So there's Sarah, who's a triceratops. And so anyway, they have to work together. They have to overcome their prejudices about each other's species to kind of work together. So, I mean, in a very kid way, of course, it's very positive and uplifting, but we talked about that it just there's so many opportunities for us to help kids understand what's going on in the story and to talk about the older dinosaurs telling Littlefoot, we don't trust three horns like sarah the triceratops and to talk about like why that might be but this can only be done if as parents you do your own work too so you have to read and be comfortable with the language so that you can start to help them um, talk about it in these different ways. So it can be challenging. And I felt like I had a lot of catch up. I felt um, one of the themes in our research, in the parenting as adoptees research, was this idea of kind of reculturating along with your kids. And I feel like in a similar way, some of us have, we learn how to have these discussions around race and culture and adoption along with our kids, because maybe we don't, we didn't learn that in our own adoptive families. And so it's something that we have to, to do. For me, definitely having kids was something that precipitated my determination that I was going to do this because I wanted them to have, you know, a different experience. So my oldest was kind of also texting about other things. You know, one of the things I want to say is that it's hard to do it alone in isolation And we lived in a neighborhood and a community because I was part of an adoptee community that when my kids were about 10 and 6, we moved to a neighborhood where I was now within just a few blocks from other transracial adoptees. And I started hosting potlucks, weekly potlucks at my house. And we were very multiracial. Many of us were adoptees and our partners and our kids. And so my kids actually grew up hearing, at least on a weekly basis, a bunch of adults talking about racism, talking about adoption. So just by hearing the adults having the conversations, too, and having a kind of an open table where they could chime in and ask questions and we could see their development and the way they were thinking about and formulating their questions around transracial adoption, it was just really fun. And so my oldest reminded me about that. You know, she said, yes, there was all the things that you did, but also going to potluck and hearing from white domestic adoptees talk about the adoption part, black transracial adoptees talking about their perspectives. You also know, just having lots of representation there, folks who were, who identified as queer, it just the kind of that open, regular interaction with the community I don't want to look like I just did all the right things because I had a community where we could all kind of do this together. We all kind of raised our kids in a sense together to have these discussions. And so I think community is such a big part of it. And when you have a community of others that you can do this with, also to say, oh, I'm struggling with my parenting right now around this topic or that topic. What should I do? And having other people who can weigh in is just really helpful.
1: It's so wonderful that you shared and thank you to your oldest, to your daughter for contributing her feedback and her thoughts and then just reflecting on these times of growing up because I think I just hear so much about the ways that you didn't want to replicate silence, you know, like you you experienced in your family growing up and just the importance that you placed on having these conversations with your children, being in community and having them uh, on a weekly, you know, conversation, you know, talking about these different issues and not only about race, but social justice. And I just can imagine what that must have felt like to be at your dinner table. And as you talk about having this safe place to land so that you can, all be talking about things that can sometimes be really tough. So I also just want to say that, yeah, The Land Before Time was such a, a movie also in my time that just I remember identifying with Littlefoot in so many ways, but also these films and other movies that especially Disney and other types of films like even E.T. I know I hear with other adoptees just activate so many big thoughts and feelings and touch on loss and and diversity issues, but also how you navigate different prejudices. So, you know, such a great way to integrate different types of media and, and have teachable moments, but also really safe conversations around this.
0: I think the concept of reculturating alongside your kids also really takes the pressure off in such a beautiful way that it's a collaborative process. It's a loving and growing process. You don't have to be the authority, you know, already by the time your kids are born and know-all and be-all everything about maybe your birth culture, country, or race issues as well, that there's this open door that can happen and that learning process can happen together. So I think that's like such a beautiful concept to share, especially in our community where those issues of authenticity can just really be fraught with a lot of anxiety and fear and shame as well. You know, talk so much about having your kids be exposed to other adoptees, both domestic, monoracial and transracial, domestic and international adoptees, as well as media kind of breaking down race and identity and Adoption issues, but I'm curious too about your own adoption story and about addressing that with your kids kind of explicitly and head on. With my daughter, I often find that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking around my adoption, but just in terms of those more direct conversations, just wondering how you chose to approach that. You know, if you kind of started talking to them when they were babies, or if there was like a time when you chose to really dive in deep and kind of how that process has unfolded so that your children have gotten a fuller and fuller and fuller picture of your specific adoption story.
2: Yeah, I don't remember a time when I consciously thought, oh, I'm going to have the conversation with them. It was just built in. I think, again, like everything else from the time they were very, very little and using those opportunities to use what they're already consuming in children's books and in the media to expand on it and tie it into our families. Because, you know, kids don't know what they don't know. So when they, another big show in our house was Annie, and my kids would be in the kitchen pretending to scrub the floor and they would sing it to Hard Knock Life. And for a while, my youngest, love the song, maybe, which is like this heartbreaking song, because Annie is singing about maybe my family will come and get me, right? But that's the song he wanted me to sing before he went to bed every night. So imagine what it's like to be an adoptee, (laughs) not in reunion and not knowing your first family, singing this song of longing and despair to your child. But I did it. And also kind of talked, like, I understood, you know, he... It's a universal theme that kids want to know who their parents are. And so using these shows to kind of talk about, like, of course, you know, grandparents are important. And you notice that grandma and grandpa don't look like me and they don't look like us. And why is that? You know, they adopted me and helping them with the language, because then I remember my oldest saying something once like, you don't know who your real parents are which is a really common thing for people to say to adoptees. And I could say, well, no, grandma and grandpa are real. They're real people. They're not my Korean parents. So they're not your Korean grandparents, but they are your grandparents. And so kind of helping them understand because kids are so concrete. And sometimes it's hard for them to understand that there can be multiples. Although they can, they can understand it. I, when adoptive parents will sometimes say to me, oh, my parent, you know, my kids, they couldn't understand, like birth parents and birth grandparents. And so many families get divorced and there's remarriages and step-parents. So people can have four sets of grandparents. Why, Why can't we talk about it in adoption in the same way as we do when we're talking about divorce and remarriage? But people don't think of it in those terms. So it's just kind of being matter of fact and trying to, again, help them with the language part, which can be tricky because we tend to whenever we think something is shameful or painful or hurtful or you know whatever we don't want to discuss it so but the silence then makes it harder for us to actually talk about it and to kind of reduce that shame it just stays you know in the in the dark shadows and i want to help expose and encourage parents to help expose that also the other thing is if you don't talk about it with your kids they will learn that information from other people And I talk about it in, in similar ways as kind of the other quote unquote hard conversations that parents don't like to have, which are about sex and drugs. And if you don't talk to your kids about what alcohol and drugs are, if you don't talk to your kids about what sex is to help them understand their bodies and all that, they will get that information from other people. It's likely to be tinged with shame and with mixed messages, especially depending on the gender of your kids and just misinformed i would rather they feel comfortable talking to me about these things than to ask their friends because their parents don't want to talk about it so i think of everything in the long term i would rather have my kids come to me and say i'm struggling with this so i don't know how to talk about this and not feel like i'm judging them or going to make them feel bad for having those questions and i think that especially for transracial adoptees discussions about race and adoption in our homes, we got the message early on. Our parents were uncomfortable talking about it. So they didn't, whether they meant to or not, I think a lot of times it was totally unintentional on the part of our parents, but they didn't know how to talk about it. So we get the message. It's not right. It's bad to talk about.
1: Yeah. I think so much of what you're saying around how, if we don't, Talk about it, then they absolutely will find other spaces or see the media or the ways that it's you know talked about in, in so many other yeah shameful you know ways or just not ways that um, may be helpful right or could be hurtful. You know, hearing you also share about singing that song from Annie about, you know, longing and loss. I just can imagine how much ego strength that took each night or just the ways that you showed up for your child, even though, you know, there's so much behind that song or so much meaning as an adoptee that that activates but also just the universal themes around kids wanting to know their parents and that they're going to be asking these questions. And so, yeah, who better to be helping, you know, really integrate those conversations than, you know, us or or you as a parent. So really appreciate you, you know, shining light on the ways that that worked for you as such a seasoned parent now and being able to help others who are really, you know, we get a lot of questions around this, trying to figure out as their children are growing up and being able to have these kinds of conversations. Talking to my kids about adoption,
2: I didn't realize that at the time it was going to be um, helpful in this way, but they, of course, interacted with many adoptees in their school or in their after-school activities or in the community. So not just the adults that were role modeled, but the other, their peer students and stuff. And my oldest actually dated a Korean adoptee for a little while. So I think it's also just helpful in terms of them being able to know so that they are not asking those harmful questions to their friends, like who are your real parents or being shocked to find out that they're adopted because it's just so normalized that, oh, yes, that's how some families are. So again, I think it's just around helping them have those tools so that they can be good friends to their fellow adoptee peers as well, and now as adults to be very kind of attuned to it.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I think that kind of like the story you shared about one of your children asking you about your real parents, and um, it can be shocking, I think, for adoptees sometimes when their own children ask them questions such as that, you know, that maybe they've been asked their entire lives by, by other people. I love that you've thought so much about how to support your kids to be so sensitive because it doesn't come naturally, obviously, you know, even if they know that you as a parent or an adoptee, not having that, if you don't get that language and that training from a younger age, you know, they can be playing out kind of what broader society
1: is doing as well. Something you said in an earlier conversation that we had was that it's not just about your relationship with your child. It's also about your future grandchildren, Would you mind elaborating a little bit more on what this means to you?
2: Yeah, I think about this in a couple of ways. First of all, as a parent myself, thinking about what I want my kids, if they choose to become parents someday themselves, what I want them to pass on to their kids. And again, you know, that's part of the intergenerationality part that we're talking about in our research study. How do we transmit our kind of values and our beliefs around race, culture, and adoption, and continue it on throughout the different generations. For me, I felt like I, you know, again, breaking kind of the cycle of the way those things were talked about with my family, my parents to me, and in our household. I feel like as adults now, again, I'm in my 50s, and we're just starting to really be able to have these conversations. And it's really hard because they're so, they're limiting But my parents are starting to understand now, oh, there was so much we didn't do. We weren't prepared. We didn't know. It's really baby steps, though. And that leads me to the second part, which is when I'm talking to parents now when adoptive parents, white adoptive parents reach out to me. I do a lot of training and work on this idea of it's not just about you as a parent and your relationship with your child. Well, first of all, sometimes they don't even think that far ahead because, as you know, when you're parenting, the days are long, but the years are short. Every day just seems like you can't really see much into the future, but it goes by so quickly and then suddenly they're teenagers and then suddenly they're 28 you know, or 38 or whatever. I really wanted to make sure that my kids, I developed a relationship with them, that they still wanted to be my friends and be my kids. I didn't want estrangement. I'd seen so much estrangement from adoptees with their adoptive parents. I didn't want my kids to be estranged from me and vice versa. My kids aren't necessarily very close to my parents. And part of that is because of the inability of my parents to be able to really think about us as a family of color, them as Korean Americans, multiracial. And so my kids picked up on some of the things that I had to go through as a kid with my parents. So I think that white adoptive parents, if they're really thinking about their kids growing up, someday their kids may not want to spend time in your all-white community with their kids because if they are trying to intentionally raise their kids around more diversity, that might be really uncomfortable. You know, we would go visit my parents at their cabin up north and get the stairs because we're the only family of color for Miles and miles and miles, and my kids didn't like it. They picked up on that. You know, kids pick up on so much. So really thinking about kind of the long-term relationships that we want to have with our families is something I think about a lot. It's really important to me, and it's something that I really want to encourage other parents, especially white adoptive parents who might be hearing this, but for sure the ones that I talk to in any of my training and work, that that could affect their relationships with their own grandchildren someday. And so really, I, I talk about it in terms of parenting for the long haul, for those future relationships that they hope to have with their kids and their grandkids someday.
0: Thank you so much, Jaron. I think that long-term vision is so important and all of the nuances of what you bring up really just resonate so deeply with me. What are the other labors of love that you're doing besides parenting these days?
2: Yeah, since I'm not really doing active parenting anymore, I would say most of my labors of love are around the research and the work that I do, my writing, my being in the community, you know, serving on different boards for organizations that mean a lot to me. And then my joys are, as you referred to earlier, I love to knit and cook and bake. I don't really see them as labor. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's kind of the trick, right? For all of these things, even parenting is like parenting is hard, but I guess in some ways they didn't really see it as a labor.
1: That's what I'm doing. Well, you bring so much joy into this world, whether that's through your, your beautiful knitting creations or your cookie baking, but also just the incredible research and gifts that you are contributing over and over again. So, you know, we can't thank you enough, Jaron. you know, for all that you continue to give. And we just are always so excited to know what you're doing. And we'll, you know, drop links for folks to continue to follow your work and be able to see all that you're doing in this world. But thank you so much for our conversation today. We just know how much this is really going to benefit our community in so many ways. So thank you so much for all that you are doing and moving and and shaking things in this world. Well, I really
2: appreciate being invited. Parenting is just such a passionate topic for me. So I just loved being able to, to have this conversation with you. And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you, Jaron, And thank you everyone for tuning in to our podcast today. If you're into what you're hearing, please spread the word and invite friends to like us and follow us and share us on Instagram at labor of love podcast. We are also on Spotify and iTunes. And if you have any extra that you'd like to pass on to us, you can donate to us at labor of love podcast on Venmo. So thank you again.